Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Disability Study channel at the New Books Network. Today, um, I will very happy to introduce our new speaker, new guest speaker, Dr. Oh, sorry, Dr. Kim Nielsen to join us to introduce her newest book, Money, Marriage and Madness. So again, first thing I want to invite is Professor Kim Nielsen to introduce herself to us. Hi, um, I'm happy to be here. I am Dr. Kim Nielsen, Distinguished University Professor of Disability Studies at the University of Toledo. Okay, thank you so much for your introduction. So NASA question will involve you interested in disability studies. So I want to know why you took interest in the field, I want to say the promising field of disability studies. For me, it is the best way that I can attempt to do an intersectional analysis as a historian. Um, When I was in graduate school, we always complained about how other faculty, everybody we read, failed to do a strong intersectional analysis. I got out in the field, discovered it's harder to do than it is to complain about. Um, And I think that using disability as an analytic is the very best way, the most effective way I've discovered to think intersectionally. Um, I find it really helpful. I find it um, an analytical tool and a topic that can be used almost anywhere in history. Um, I think it's interesting. It's smart. There's lots of great work going on. Yeah, thank you so much for your answer. So let's go to your book. So my first question will be invite to you to talk about Anna O's personal life such as her marriage um, before being institutionalized in 1973. Okay, um, this, so this is a book about a woman named Anna Barbara Blazer Meese Ott, and I use her to talk about the social power of diagnosis, um, the legal precarity in which women existed in the 19th century, the ways that Diagnosis, or excuse me, ableism and sexism work together, or ableism and patriarchy work together. Um, so Anna Ott was a woman who arrived in the U.S. as a teenager. She in into Ohio. Um, 
she was married to a man who became a physician in Ohio in the 1830s and 40s. Um, they established a home in Chillicothe, Ohio, where he was a physician. She was the physician's wife who helped with medicines, um, preparation, basically did triage. Um, they had several, two small children. Um, the marriage was um, very tumultuous. Um, they eventually divorced. She came out of that with some cash. She moved to, she married again and moved to Madison, Wisconsin, where she opened up a physician's practice. Um, there they also had, um, she, she had a lot of status because she was a physician, but she also faced a lot of violence in their household and a lot of violence um, from her second husband, George, that the entire community knew about. Okay, thank you again for your answer about and. Anna Cole's early life. So my next question will be about Anna Cole's career as a female physician in the mid 19th century. Um, yeah, I you know I use ought to talk about the power of the physician, um, but she was she was a physician in Madison, Wisconsin, one of two white female physicians in the state at this point in time. She had arrived in Madison, having claimed to gone to one of the. Um, medical colleges for women in Philadelphia. Um, she established a practice um, that lasted about 15 years or so. Um, you know, it's hard to know exactly what she did there, but there's evidence that she um, did surgeries, she delivered babies, um, she did, you know, the things that a 19th century physician would do, um, helped folks with diseases. She had her office um, most likely off of the capital in Madison, Wisconsin, um, you know, but, but was a certainly considered her status as a female physician in the 19th, mid 19th century, both gave her some honor and attention, but it also made people slight, you know, skeptical of her. There's both a privilege and a um, stigma there that went on with that status. Thank you so much again for your answer. So my next question will be um, Anna O's experience after being admitted to the Wisconsin State Hospital for instance, especially how she took agency in her everyday life later. Ott was a woman who stood out because she had a lot of money that she had control of in her own funds. Um, she was a female physician. She also stood out in town because she, um, she and her husband had a very lovely, huge house on Lake Mendota. At the same time, as I said, he was a very violent man, and the community all knew that he, you know, at various times had thrown her out in the street in the middle of a Wisconsin snowstorm. She and her daughter from her first marriage, um, the, the volatile relationship was very much in the public sphere, and people knew about this. Um, when, yeah, so, so she, um, I guess I want to put, you know, she, she, one doesn't just doesn't wake up in an insane asylum with no history to that. And the both stigma and the honor that she had the community, you know, made her in essence stand out. Um, she, you know, eventually her husband to her two other, two other local physicians who were her colleagues, um, had her declared incompetent and legally insane. Um, she 
was admitted to the Wisconsin State Hospital for the Insane and ended up staying there for 20 years as an inmate patient. Um, she also had was placed under guardianship. Um, you know, I, I think we see here the gendered nature of, of diagnosis. Um, she had diagnoses given very stereotypically to women in this time period. Um, and, you know, and then and she was admitted and spent the last 20 years of her life there. Um, I think her time in the insane asylum is interesting because it was awful. It was absolutely horrid. The medical records indicate this. The investigations of the place indicate this. The every information we have about this, that this was not a pleasant place to be. At the same time, she clearly sought agency in her own life by shaping her daily activities. Um, she had seamstresses come into the asylum. She had food brought into the asylum. We have a little bit of evidence about how she um, perhaps practiced medicine in the asylum, um, but she worked, you know, she clearly sought, um, despite the controls around her, to exercise some agency in her own life. Okay, thank you again for your answer about, I mean, um, Anna Gold's everyday life in asylum. So my next question is about her economic life later. Mm-hmm. Well, her, she's so interesting to me because um, this was a woman with a lot of funds in her own that she had worked very hard to get from her first husband and um, that she had garnered in land investments and in property around Madison, Wisconsin um, and throughout the entire Midwest. Um, with both husbands, she had various legal arrangements so that she owned the material, she had access to and controlled her material goods. Um, when she was institutionalized, she was declared incompetent and given a economic and legal guardian. That guardian, however, was not her second husband. The court um, declared a local lawyer in town to be her guardian. You know, it, there's evidence that she complained loudly about the possibility of her ex-husband or her husband at that time being her guardian. Um, so the courts appointed a local attorney and that local attorney had power to say yes or no to all of her expenditures. So legally, she had no control over funds at all. Um, her guardian, however, let her spend and seems not to have intervened. So well in the asylum, she ordered furniture, um, new clothing several times a year, um, fruits and vegetables, newspapers to read, books to read. Um, there's some evidence that she also paid to have carriage rides, boat rides in the summertime. Um, and as I said, some evidence that she had a medicine brought into the asylum that she paid for from a local drugstore, um, which always makes me wonder if she exercised her life as a doctor in the asylum. Um, but, I, you know, asylums were really active economic places, and she very much contributed to that. Thank you so much again for your answer. So now it's our, I mean, our last question is, I mean, just beyond and Anna's own life. I want to ask you to talk about, I mean, how biography could be a powerful and effective tool in historical research. To me, history matters because there are people in it, people who have daily lives, who are um, restricted, who exercise great agency, who people who are admirable, people who are despicable. But it matters because there's people in it. And um, I think my 
Using biography, we can see how large social structures, which are often difficult to understand, actually shape individual people's lives. Like, you know, we can talk about racism, but if we don't talk about how it affected people, it doesn't matter. We can talk about capitalism, right? Our institutionalization, our ableism, all of these large social forces, but we need to know how they impact people um, and how people resisted them and lived within them. Um, so I think biography is really powerful because we can see how in a historical moment, these large social forces actually shaped people's lives and people lived with those large social forces. Um, and as I said, both exercised agency and lacked agency all at the same <clears throat> time, excuse me. Um, I also think biography when well-written can just be fun to read. Um, it is always my go-to when I need to work, but I don't feel like working. Um, so I can rationalize I'm working away while I read a great biography. Um, I think we like to see ourselves in history. Um, and often we can, as individuals, can connect to historical figures through biography. Um, it's a way to see into the past that I think is particularly powerful. Okay, thank you, Dr. Nikin. Thank you so much for your answer again. So at the end of our two talk today, I want to recommend all of my, I mean, audience, please think about buying a copy of Dr. Kim Nielsen's newest book, Money, Marriage, and Manners, which is a fantastic book about like a women's experience and encounter with mental health and health, mental health institution in late 19th century. So thank you, Dr. Kim Nielsen. Thanks for your coming to our podcast today again. Oh, thank you. You're welcome.